Although it was many years ago, I still remember the restaurant. I remember the evening. I remember the conversation over dinner and the jarring experience that I had as I got in my car and drove away. It was the first conversation that indicated something was terribly wrong. A few months prior to this, my wife and I had just moved back to the Pacific Northwest. We were living in Portland and I had a list of relationships that I was excited to rekindle and uh, people to spend time with who we'd lost contact with somewhat over the years. We didn't have kids yet and so I had a little bit more flexibility with my time and had uh, determined with a Christian brother that we would uh, catch dinner every week or every other week. Over those dinners, we would talk about life. We'd talk about Christ and truth. Talk about our families and churches and learn more about each other's backgrounds. We'd talk about the food and where we were going to eat next. We talked about technology and it was a great time together. But I remember leaving dinner one night very troubled. And although I didn't have much life experience yet, although I didn't have theological training, there was something distressing to me in that interaction. Something that wasn't sitting right with me as as I was reflecting on what I had just heard. In the course of conversation over dinner, my, my brother in Christ began to share with me that he'd been doubting the reliability of the gospel witness. Then when you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and you look at some of the discrepancies, it would indicate that their testimony was really not all that reliable. He was reading different philosophers and critics of the gospel witness and beginning to doubt whether or not you could really take everything that Jesus said and did as it's laid out, or whether maybe you could kind of take most of it and some general principles and some loving concepts that he had, but it wasn't really, it wasn't really trustworthy in terms of authoritative truth. He had lots of speculations about how maybe we, maybe we misunderstood the Gospels. Maybe we're reading it through our, our modern lens or postmodern, in this case, lens. And, and so we're misunderstanding what the real meaning really was. Maybe it's behind the words in some fashion. Remember that night, even immediately warning my brother? Not eloquently. I didn't have uh, a whole lot in terms of knowing exactly what to say or how to say it, but I remember appealing him to be careful because what I was hearing was someone elevating their own desires, their own intellect, their own reasoning over the truth. Over the course of the next months, my friend continued on a trajectory. What started with questioning the reliability and the veracity of the Gospels began to manifest itself in less frequent church attendance. Began to have more excuses for a lack of obedience in his life. Soon he was crossing boundaries as a married man. Haven't spoken to him in 15 years, but my final conversations with him were him stating that the ultimate fulfillment of Ephesians chapter 5 and loving his wife sacrificially was actually to leave his wife and die to himself so that she could be loved by a better man than him. And so in obedience to Ephesians 5, as he understood it, he was 
leaving his marriage vows. It was the final rationalization before he ultimately walked away, not just from his marriage, but from Christ. He walked away from Christ. The Bible calls this apostasy. Apostasy is where you are at one point clinging to Christ, you're confessing Christ, and then you leave your confession. It's a different category than merely being in unbelief. This is someone that appears to have a connection to the Lord and then at some point breaks that connection. They're attached at one point by definition to be an apostate and then they leave that connection. Today's passage gets right at the heart of this very issue. How does it happen? How do we address the danger? How do we protect ourselves from this type of conclusion? Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Today's message is spiritual wake-up call. This is the the tone and the setting from which this text would have come to the original hearers. This passage is a warning passage. That's how we would classify it. It's the first one in Hebrews. It's not the last that we will see. And when you come to a warning passage, you're not to immediately dismiss it or discount it by, by saying that this warning could not apply to me. Brother, you're to hear the warning and you're to respond to it. Of course, you, if you are in Christ, could never lose your salvation. We believe in the, the preservation of the saints. That means that if, if God has regenerated your heart, then you can't become unregenerated. If God has declared you justified, you can't become unjustified. But at the same time, if you think you're in Christ and you don't respond to this warning, then you will apostatize. And so oftentimes when you come to a a warning passage, there's a temptation in the heart on the the part of the person communicating the warning passage. That would be me. And a temptation on the part of the hearer, the one hearing the warning passage, to think, surely that doesn't really apply to me. To try to qualify the warning passage. To try to explain away the warning. But the real warning here is simply to not fall away from Christ. So you can never lose your salvation. John 10 makes that clear. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And as we just sang, no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. If you belong to Christ, you are hidden with him. You are protected in his hand. But it's also true that God brings about your preservation in the faith through means. God brings about your completion in the Christian life through means. And one of those means is, in fact, warnings to take heed to your soul. Think about it this way. We, we exult in glory in the sovereignty of God who's preordained all of the events of history before they've happened. And yet this very God is ordained to accomplish means through your prayers. He wants you to pray. He wants to work through the means of your prayer, although, of course, he's already sovereignly ordained what will come to pass. 
And so if you are in Christ, your preservation in part is brought about through the means of heeding warnings given to you in Scripture. If you disregard a warning passage, then you're disregarding the warning. Believers hear a warning passage and they say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so if you were to think back to my opening illustration about my friend, my friend did not lose his salvation. It was something that he never possessed. You understand that? He didn't lose anything. It was something that he never in fact had. He professed Christ. He went to a Christian school. He belonged to a church. He served. He gave money. He read Christian books. He came from a Christian family. He had a Christian marriage. He talked about Christian things. And yet, at the point that he decided to turn his back on the Lord Jesus Christ and walk away from the gospel, he demonstrated that all that he had previously believed was actually a lie. He was never actually Christ's. And so what makes apostasy so scary is that you don't know it until you know it. You don't know it until you know it. I mean, as I think back over my life, I've had multiple pastors who I looked up to or I was under their care just to experience not only moral failure, but abandoning the gospel altogether. So I think through my family life over the years, multiple family members with fellowship, enjoying talking about the things of the Lord, or so it seemed, only to watch them walk away from Christ. And friends, friends where I was sitting in the congregation moved to tears at their testimony in their baptism, in the waters of baptism, at all the wonderful things the Lord had done for them. Boasting in the Lord, passionate about preaching, passionate about evangelism, zeal and piety. Only do later see them abandon Christ. My friends, you cannot see apostasy until it happens. You can't see it until it happens. And what you and I must understand and what this author is getting at today is, is that No one begins their journey with Christ saying, I intend to leave my profession. All of these started differently. Those pastors that I knew that left the faith, they weren't going to seminary saying, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. Here's what I think would be a good plan. I'm going to go to seminary, I'm going to become a pastor, and then 20 years in... I'm going to pull the parachute, get publicly humiliated, and then try and go start over and find a new career. That's that's my game plan from day one. Those friends weren't thinking, I'm going to get baptized in front of hundreds of people. I'm going to join the church. I'm going to tell everyone I possibly can about Jesus. One of these people, even to the point where uh, his livelihood began to be tremendously affected by his testimony for Christ. And then that way, someday when I walk away from Jesus, I will have the accountability of the church. I'll have church discipline. I'll have burned bridges in my livelihood. That was not the intent from the beginning. No one ever intends to apostatize. See, apostates appear to start out like every other believer. 1 John 2.19, John writes that they, those who apostatize, went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out 
so that it might be complained that they all are not of us. And so in the heart of apostate, at some point, it eventually becomes clear. It becomes clear, not that, that you've lost something that you possessed, but rather that you never possessed salvation in the first place. My friends, if you are Christ's, then you will endure to the end and you will hear a warning and you will respond to it by faith. It is as simple as that. And so Hebrews 2 is written to the church. We don't try and do backflips and say, oh, it was, it was written to a, a group that, that wasn't a part of the congregation that was unbelieving. No, it was written to the saints. It was written to the people who called themselves the redeemed, to the gathered assembly. And this is a gracious call to those who are in a spiritually precarious place, to come back to the Good Shepherd. There's no substitute for Jesus Christ. There's no substitute for faith in Christ. Many times today, people want a Jesus that is is accepting of all things, a Jesus that is palatable. In fact, if, if I were to stand up and say, Jesus woos you, and that is how he keeps you in his love, People would affirm that. They like the idea of a, of a wooing Jesus. And in, in a sense, the Lord woos us. When we were in Hosea, we talked about the wooing love of God. But the same Jesus who woos you also warns you. He warns you. That's part of his word too. And so we don't merely pick and choose how we would like Jesus to address us. We don't, we don't stand in judgment over that and think this seems like the most palatable way to represent God's disposition toward us, but rather we take a God who woos and a God who warns. Think of how ridiculous it would be. Imagine if we were, we're bringing this building up to code. Okay, that's kind of a, uh, an unfathomable goal, but imagine that we're bringing this building up to code and you have the fire doors Right? And they begin to put in the fire alarms and the lights that go off. And what happens when the alarm goes off? And it's, it's, it's a little bit jarring when all of a sudden the doors that are propped open slam closed to prevent the fire from going into another room. And those strobe lights start flashing and you can hardly see. And the siren begins to go off. Now imagine how ridiculous we had an interior designer come in here and say, you know, that, that is just really stark, the strobe lights. I think, I think a softer light would be nice. Maybe we could have a dimmer switch and just kind of gently bring up the emergency lights. That would be nice. Instead of a siren, how about, how about some, some violin music? And we'll just tell everyone when you hear the violin music, that means it's time to get out of the building. And instead of the doors slamming closed, slamming is just so aggressive. Maybe we could just have like some indicator to, to just kind of gently close the door if, if it's convenient. My friends, the point of a warning is to wake us up. It is to alert us so that we might pay attention to something. And so the writer of Hebrews is, is writing to this church. He sees they're, they're beginning to be shaky in their confidence in Christ. And so his warning is not that you need to be a better Christian. His warning is, do not let go of Jesus. Do not let go of Jesus. In fact, he urges them, pay careful attention to the words of Jesus. 
Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This passage is outlined as follows. Pay careful attention to the words of Jesus. Point number one, so you don't accidentally drift away. Point number two, because you'll perish if you do. And point number three, plus you get solid evidence to trust. He opens by saying, pay careful attention to the words of Jesus. Therefore, in verse one, points back to all of chapter one. So if you've been with us through chapter one, what have we done? We have, we have just been extolling the person of Jesus, his awesome character, his incredible revelation of God, how he's a more superior word. He is the supreme son. And so the author is saying, I've been giving you all of this theology for one chapter, and the reason why I'm giving you that theology is now to give you your responsibility. I want you to put in practice and act on all of the theology that you've just been given. The fact that God now has spoke to us in his son means that you need to listen up. And the original, he says, it is necessary. This is not optional. This is something that you must do. That is, you've, you've got to continue in what it is that you have heard. And there's a lot of information that you learn that you can just flush at some point. Right? Before studying to become a pastor, I was considering another career uh, that was going to require graduate school. And to get into graduate school, you take the, the GRE. And so to take the GRE, you order some books and you study to take a test. And you memorize a ridiculous amount of information. You take the test. And then what do you do? You hawk the books and you move on with life because you took the test and you don't need the information anymore. It's not needed for an ongoing certification. There's, there's no need to retain what you learned. It was really just for the purpose of demonstrating that you can study and cram well enough to get through grad school. My friends, that's not how the gospel message works. You don't simply listen to the message enough to get into Christ and then move on from it and flush it as though you can continue without it. This is a message that you hear and you keep going back to. This is a savior that you meet and you keep communing with day after day after day after day. This is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is something that you cannot ignore. In fact, when he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention, it sounds kind of like it's a comparison. So we need to pay closer attention to this than to this. And, and there is a comparative element as he's going to talk about the message of angels in a minute. But, but the best way to understand this would be, we must pay the closest attention. We must pay the closest attention. 
What we have heard is, is to be the matter of greatest concern in our lives. This idea is to hold fast to the truth. To pay the greatest attention to the truth, the message that we have heard, that's, that's the message of the gospel. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does this look like? Well, it's the opposite of complacency. It's the opposite of negligence. It's the opposite of a, of a presumption upon the Lord. It is, it is an attentiveness that understands, if I don't have Christ, I don't have anything. So just think in your life, what is it that you pay close attention to? When I first experienced buying uh, a stock index was in 2008. It seemed like a good time. And so uh, I purchased, you know, my first uh, batch of stock index. And the mindset in buying it was, uh, we're going to set aside this investment because we don't need it in the next year. We don't need it in the next five years. You know, I was always told you, if you're going to invest in the stock market, it's long term. So we're going to set aside this investment. And it's something that we don't need to worry about for decades, right? We're just going to leave it there and it's going to sit. Well, 2008 was the year that the iPhone came out. And so I had an iPhone and there was a little app for a stock ticker. And so I punched in the index that I had. And although I knew that investment was, was years down the road, I didn't really need to be too concerned about it. What was I doing? All right, it's 9 8. What's okay? It opened today 2% up. Okay. Hour later, how are we doing? Okay, we're down half a percent. All right, two hours later, we're up 3%. Okay, this is awesome. I mean, I am attentive to that index. Now, the irony, of course, is I have no intention of, of doing anything with it, but, but I, I, was, I was enthralled with that subject. I was attentive to it. There was a, a careful watchfulness. It was a big deal to me. And so begin to think in your own life, what is it that you pay careful attention to? Certainly, you make sure that when you file your tax returns, you do them properly so you don't get audited. Perhaps you pay careful attention to your physical health and the food that you put in your body. You like it just a certain way. Or your fashionability. Or your personal pleasures. Or whatever the case might be. When you look at your life, you are to say that the, the matter of greatest concern, the matter of greatest importance, that which I pay closest attention to is the words of Jesus Christ. My friends, he says, these are the words that you've heard. These would be all of the words of Christ, but first and foremost, the very message of the gospel, that Jesus is your Messiah and that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. The word here is not just a declaration that you hear, but it's when you begin to engage with the word in such a way that that there's a, a transformation of spiritual reality that takes place. You think about the words of this author. He doesn't say don't hate the Bible. He doesn't say don't burn the Bible. And say don't don't spit on the Bible. Don't deny the Bible. No, he's saying don't grow complacent. Don't grow complacent with the truth that you know. You need to pay close, close attention to it because in the human heart, the natural tendency is that we begin to 
grow complacent. That's what he's after here. So subtle. And so the author says, I'm reminding you of how glorious and awesome this word that came to us through Jesus is. I spent a whole chapter, chapter one, reminding you of how glorious that word is. Now your responsibility is pay attention to it. Pay attention to that word. You say, well, well, why must I pay attention to it? Our first point, so you don't accidentally drift away from it. So you don't accidentally drift away from it. This part of the verse, second part of verse 1, begins lest. That's a negative purpose. In other words, the argument is, pay close attention to what you've heard so that you don't end up drifting. So that that's not what happens. If you think of all the expressions this author could use, he uses drifting. Drifting is a nautical term. It was used of of ships that would be on a particular course and then they would begin to get off course and drift a little bit and they would end up far from the intended destination. It was a nautical term that would be used for a a roaring river and you could picture a, a leaf getting disconnected from a branch and then floating quickly down the river, carried along as it were. It's used here as an idiomatic expression connected to the feeling of helplessness as you watch something drift away from where it needs to be. That's the picture. Floating. We understand this. We call people drifters sometimes, and by that we mean they lack a consistent commitment either in relationships typically or some type of steadfast connection. They kind of drift around, and so we call them drifters. But a spiritual drifter is is someone who begins to drift away from the person of Jesus himself. They start out close to him. They start out clinging to him. Everything looks good on the surface. And then by and by, they begin to separate. They begin to drift. The Bible describes some of these people as always learning. Never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. There's apostates that know the Bible far better than I do. Knowledge is not the issue. Zeal and passion for Christ is not the issue. Service and works and deeds done to Christ are not the issue. It's actually becoming complacent in Christ himself. And so the the notion that we commonly believe is that I can just kind of hang out in a position of neutrality from a spiritual standpoint. Not really growing in, I wouldn't say I'm growing in my relationship with Christ, but I also wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm going away from him. I'm just kind of stagnant. Friends, this text says there is not a stagnant. The idea is that if, if you are In this life, there is a current that is pulling you away from Christ. And so you are either clinging to him or you are drifting away from him. Richard Phillips insightfully writes, one of the key ideas here is that drifting away is something that happens largely unnoticed. 
Drifting is, is not something that happens suddenly. It happens largely unnoticed. The, the changes at first are imperceptible, and only later do the consequences become clear. I am not a strong swimmer. Uh, I enjoy swimming, but I'm not very good at it. And uh, when I'm swimming, it kind of looks like I'm trying to kill the water. I don't know how to get down a nice smooth stroke. It's just aggressive and exhausting. So just swimming even a short distance will completely wear me out uh, based upon how, how weak my finesse is when it comes to my swim stroke. I remember being out in the ocean and swimming with buddies and we're out there long enough that I'm getting tired and, and I knew kind of my distance and I'm thinking I'm in a good spot. And it wasn't until I began to swim back as the waves are cresting that I realized, man, I'm out here hundreds of feet further than I thought I was. Why? Well, because we're playing around, we're joking, we've got a football and a frisbee, we're hanging out in the water, and, and I'm not realizing that I'm in fact drifting that entire time. And I know now far the shore was, I would have kept much closer, and yet it was, it was imperceptible. And so suddenly there was the panic of realizing how far I've now drifted, not noticing the imperceptible changes that were taking place. And so I want you to think about that in a spiritual context. Richard Phillips continues so insightfully, and he says, there is a current, there is a current rushing in this present evil age, pulling strongly out from the safe harbor of salvation in Christ. We do not have to actively betray Jesus or renounce our faith simply by not paying attention. By becoming preoccupied with the sights and sounds of this world, we can easily be drawn out until we are swept away forever. Do you realize that, he asks? Do you realize, given the corrupt nature of this world and of your heart, that you naturally become dull and then deadened spiritually, steadily believing the lies of this age? You see, if you hear a warning like this and you say, that could never happen to me, then you're already in a very dangerous spot. Rather, you hear that warning and you say, my only hope is to cling to Christ. I must pay close attention to this word. I see the dangers. And look at how the author writes here. He doesn't say, unless you all drift away, you little spiritual nothings. He says, unless we drift away from it unless we drift away from it. See, it's the recognition that in and of myself, I am not above apostatizing. That's what every Christian should say. To confess, I cannot keep myself in the love of God, and neither can you. And if your salvation depended upon your faithfulness to Christ, you would for sure be drawn away. And yet then we can also say that true believers... Pay attention to the words of Christ. True believers have an attentiveness to the voice of their shepherd. I mean, what does it look like to not pay attention? It's that when you hear the word of God, you don't submit yourself to it. That's what it would look like to not pay attention. This could be anything from enslavement to a particular area of sin that you're unwilling to bring into the light. This could be doubting the exclusivity of the gospel. This could be flirting with 
different types of sin that you know would be ensnaring and yet you're drawn to it and you don't want to turn back from it. It could be any area of unbelief or sin that isn't dealt with that begins to plug up your spiritual ears so they get clogged and suddenly what used to be the, the clear voice of your Savior now becomes kind of quiet because you've softened it. And, and rather than hearing His call because you're close to it, you've drifted so far away that, that now it's just kind of a distant whisper to you. See, to be drifting away is to be carried away bit by bit. You understand what his analogy isn't? He doesn't say, therefore, we must pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we fall into a pothole. Or lest we careen off a cliff, as if it's, it's suddenly just this spot where I'm, I'm standing firm, holding on to Christ, and then I immediately crash. No, this is something that happens slowly. The calluses that build up over the heart. You know, sometimes a seasoned pastor will issue a warning. Not just to an individual, but regarding a particular viewpoint that is dangerous. And they're looked at as, as stodgy or narrow for that warning. You know, very often that warning is coming from the recognition that where this starts is not where it's going to end up. And so the warning happens sooner to prevent you getting to the inevitable conclusion if you don't heed it. If you begin to embrace these things, you need to understand that the current is not drawing you near to Christ. The current is pulling you away. The current is not bringing clarity to the gospel. The current is always convoluting it. The current is, is not giving voice to God. It is silencing it. And so an apostate is always spiritually overestimating themselves. On the path to apostasy is always the overestimation of self. In other words, the warning comes and, and they say, look, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to drift. I know I'm not going to drift. I'm in good shape right now. My friends, this is foolish self-confidence. Foolish overconfidence. If you begin to think that, that as you drift from the Lord, you can keep that situation under control in your heart, and whenever you want, you can just reach back and grab hold of him, and you are pridefully not heeding this truth. See, drifting from the word is drifting from Christ himself. This is someone who doesn't pick and choose the truths they like or don't like. This isn't someone who's always arguing in, in an approach to say there's a lack of clarity from the truth. God preserves your salvation. You don't keep yourself saved, but he preserves you through the means of attentiveness to the words of Christ. And so this author says, pay careful attention to the words of Jesus, number one, so you don't accidentally drift away. Number two, because you will perish if you do. Because you will perish if you do. Verse two, for since the message delivered by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so here's the the. Uh, argumentation, the way that the author is working through this passage, he's reasoning again now from the lesser to the greater. 
And so this is a very powerful way to communicate. Um, I, I can't remember which company it was, but I know years ago there was an insurance company uh, commercial and it would say, you know, don't let this happen to you. Uh, actually, it was Capital One, I think. Now as I'm saying it, it just came to mind. Uh, the idea though is, is take this example and learn from it and recognize you don't want that. You don't want what happened to them to happen to you. And so the author is drawing back to something that they know well, which is the testimony of the Old Testament. And he's saying, you think back to what happened to Israel and don't let what happened to Israel happen to you. These things were written for our instruction, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. What's he talking about? Well, the message declared by angels, as we saw last week, Stephen refers back to in Acts 7, that was the giving of the law and the Mosaic Covenant. So the message that came by angels, that was when God redeemed Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. Then he said, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up. That was my sovereign grace. Now here's the regulations, the stipulations for our relationship. At Sinai, he gave them a covenant relationship. And here's how things worked. It was a contractual agreement of sorts. This was very common in the ancient Near East. It was a treaty, a covenant, a relationship defined between two kings. And one king was the suzerain and the other was the vassal. And the suzerain king was the powerful and mighty king who would go and conquer. And then he would bring the vassal king under and say, I'm going to give you protection and provision. And then in response, you're going to give me tribute. You're going to give me honor. You're going to give me money. And if you break the rules, guess what? I'm going to come after you. And if you keep the rules, then I'll continue to protect you. And so as we understand the Mosaic law, the giving of the law to Israel, it was fitting into that same format that was very common among the kings in the ancient Near East. And so the Lord gives Israel the law, the message that came declared by angels. And he said at the end of that law, this, in Deuteronomy 28. And Yahweh will make you the head and not the tail. Sounds pretty good. And you shall only go up and not down. Okay, that's good. If, here's the condition, you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you to do, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Now here's the sanction. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he just begins a litany of curses. I mean, it's staggering to read. You're going to get cursed when you wake up. You're going to get cursed when you go to bed. You're going to get cursed when you go out. You're going to get cursed when you come back in. You're going to get cursed when you go to fight and when you stay home and when you plant and when you reap. I mean, it is a totality of punishment that's going to come for disregarding the word of God in the covenant that he made. And friends, these were legal ramifications. It was a legally defined relationship. If you think about in, in real estate, you have a buyer and seller come together. They have a contract. And within that contract, you can have, um, if you so choose, penalties for non-performance. That means if, if one side doesn't do what they're supposed to, then we're going to enact some type of a sanction or a consequence. And so in the law, it had penalties for non-performance. It had sanctions if you broke the terms of the agreement. And so you look at this, this is just litany of legal terminology. 
A transgression right here in the text is, is a violation, a breaking of the rules, a crossing of the line. Disobedience is an unwillingness to hear and an unwillingness to listen and submit. And he says, if every transgression or disobedience, each and every one of them numbered, received a just retribution, how shall we escape? What's a just retribution? Well, that's the payment. It's the wages and the recompense. So the idea is that you will incur, essentially, whatever your actions incur, whether blessing or cursing. And so when God came and brought the prophets in the Old Testament, they would come and they would say to Israel, Israel, I have this against you. In fact, the best way to understand the prophetic role in one sense was as a prosecuting attorney. Hosea 4 opens up and says, the Lord has a controversy with you right now. He has a contention. What's the contention? Well, if you read the contract, you guys have broken the rules. And when that punishment was meted out, it was perfectly just. Remember when Israel was about to get let off into captivity? And the Lord said, oh, by the way, I was counting the Sabbaths that you failed to let the land rest. And so when you leave, the land is going to get all the Sabbaths that I wanted it to have. Because you're going to be enslaved by someone you don't want to be under for that total amount of time. The idea is that the, the Lord is just as to keep track or keep score, as it were. He's not like a human parent, right? A human parent says, if you cross the line, here's the consequence. And sometimes we do that, and sometimes what happens? And we, we feel like, ah, oh, that consequence feels like a little bit too much. Maybe you have a, a very sweet slash manipulative child that appeals to you, and your compassionate side just kind of starts to wiggle and squirm that... Oh, that consequence kind of hurts me. And now I don't want to dole it out. And so we, we pull back from the standard. When the text says that, that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, it means that the Lord is keeping score. And every breaking of the covenant resulted in the consequence that he promised. See, God didn't punish like a, a spineless father would. He was like a just judge. And so the author is saying, if, if we can look back historically and see that the people who rejected the voice of God and rejected obeying him experienced exact consequences, then verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect a great salvation? Escape is the idea of, of fleeing from danger. The idea of having some kind of an escape hatch where uh, when the bad guys come and they're in the house, you can, you can duck and sneak out and avoid getting caught. The idea here is that if you disregard Jesus and he's assuming it to be true for the sake of argument, then you would never escape the judgment of God. So you can't be negligent and careless with Jesus you can't neglect this great salvation. You can't say, well, yeah, Jesus is, is kind of my Savior, but I, I really am not that keen in clinging to him or living for him or being attached to him. And I'm thinking that it's probably going to be all right in the end. Now, the author says, if, if Israel got punished for every disobedience and now you disregard Christ, you're going to get the full punishment for your sin. 
You think about the consequences of spiritual neglect and neglecting a great salvation. If, if you neglect a great salvation, even as a believer, you're going to lead others astray. You're going to begin to damage your conscience. You're going to reap sparingly spiritual benefits. You're going to invite the discipline of the Lord as a father to a child. But this kind of negligence and neglect is not merely a, a believer that would neglect some spiritual disciplines. This is someone who would neglect salvation and say, you know what? I'm going to roll the dice and I think I'm okay without Christ on my own. See, the idea is here that if you drift away from the gospel, then you will end up in very deep trouble with God. It doesn't matter what you prayed as a profession of faith. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you've Gone to seminary and graduated. Doesn't matter how many years you've walked with Christ. If you neglect this great salvation, then you will perish. See, the message here that he's saying is, is not merely to look back in something that you find confidence in, as if your confidence is there, but rather to look at your relationship with Christ and find confidence with Him. You are to pay careful attention to the words of Jesus so you don't accidentally drift away because you'll perish if you do. Not only that, but you've got solid evidence to trust in. He finishes off here and he reminds them of the trustworthiness of the message we have in Christ. He says in the second part of verse 3, it was declared at first by the Lord. That's the message of the gospel. And it was attested, it was proven to us by those who heard well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what he's saying is that the message came first by the risen Lord. Jesus himself came and proclaimed the gospel message. And then after he was risen, he appeared to the apostles. And according to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he demonstrated who he was with many convincing proofs. Many convincing proofs. Then the apostles proclaimed the gospel and God attested to it. See, they would go and they would give a message and they would say, I'm speaking in behalf of God. And then supernatural things would take place to demonstrate that they in fact had come from God. Signs, in fact, uh, speaking in tongues were a sign of divine revelation. The authority of the message. The apostles had the ability to heal the sick. And so as they would begin to heal or even raise from the dead, it was a validation that God is in fact speaking and you can trust that Jesus is the only way to God. So it tends to happen at some point at the end in the heart of an apostate is they begin to doubt the veracity of truth itself. It's not usually where it starts, but it's where it ends up. The human art starts to argue with the clarity and the authority of Scripture that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And so every apostate that I've ever witnessed leaves Christ and goes into something else. They leave Christ and they go into Catholicism. They leave Christ and they go into paganism. They leave Christ and they go into to, um, mysticism or intellectualism or some type of pursuit that they leave the clarity of truth for. And so here he just says, listen, this message was declared by Christ himself. It was attested by the apostles. And we ourselves saw the sure testimony. 
The idea was that when the apostles came and preached to the Hebrews, they heard the gospel message and it was validated by the apostles with signs and wonders. And now he's saying, look, it's a trustworthy word that you don't need to doubt. So what's the difference between doubting and apostatizing? If you're honest, you doubt the Lord sometimes. You doubt whether there's really a God, whether he's really in heaven and he's spoken to you in his son. You doubt the trustworthiness of the gospels and the truth at times. And so what do you do as a believer when you find yourself doubting? You go back to the very source of truth, Jesus himself. See, the apostate doesn't do that. The apostate doesn't come back to the word. The apostate says, I, I think I'm good on my own. I don't need to listen to that right now. And so when you hear a warning passage like this, it is a call to come back to God in the revelation of Scripture, to simply cling to truth, and to take God at his word and to trust him more than you even trust yourself, that he is a strong and mighty Savior. See, the message for an apostate and the message for a believer is the same. It is to turn to the more sure word which is given in the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can't reform yourself. It's even if you're on the path to apostasy. That's something that you're not powerful enough to fix. And yet Christ, through his word, is able to solve even that problem. I want to close by reading a couple of verses from Psalm 19 that remind us of the work that God does with his powerful word in the hearts of his people. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Who can see himself rightly? Rhetorical answer is no, no one. And so he looks to the Lord and says in verse 12, Declare me then, Lord, innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, thank you for the surety and the clarity of your word. Lord, thank you for the warning that you would issue to us that we not grow complacent or dull in our walk with you. Lord, what a, what a gracious remedy because we do see that present often in our hearts that Lord, we don't ultimately have to fear these things, but we simply need to respond to you rightly when we see them. Lord, I pray that you would call even today those who might be drifting or to cling to Christ and to not roll the dice in pride and self-confidence thinking that uh, they have things under control spiritually. Lord, I pray that you'd remind all of us that even if we stand firm, we stand firm always in your grace. Salvation was started by you and it's completed by you. And I thank you for the confident assurance of that as well. Lord, it actually gives us great hope to know that uh, our soul is secure and that there is nothing that we could do if we're in Christ that would ever separate us from your love. 
And so, Lord, we can say it is a sweet thing to trust in Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.